Welcome back to Mince Levens from the Edge. I am Jeremy Glazer, the co-chair of the Mince Levin Venture Capital and Emerging Company Practice. I hope you all enjoyed your summer. We're glad to be back from our summer break and look forward to providing more valuable information for entrepreneurs as we start our second year of From the Edge. Mince Levin is a nationally leading law firm focused on helping emerging growth companies achieve success. Check us out at minceedge.com. Well, I'm really pleased to start off our second year with a very good friend and someone I've worked with over, over many, many years on a number of transactions, John Rochford. John is the founder and managing director of Strategic Advisory Services International, which goes by SASE. Did I, did I pronounce that right, John? Yes, you did. John. Okay. Yes. Which is a boutique M&A advisory firm focused on enterprise software, software infrastructure, SaaS models, storage, and MarTech. John started SASE over 10 years ago with the intent of helping entrepreneurs get happy exits. I love that term. And in the process has developed strategic relationships with top technology companies, including Google, Intel, and Qualcomm. On today's podcast, John will discuss how to prepare your company for a successful sale and explain why using an advisor is a good idea, which I, by the way, wholeheartedly agree with. Thank you. Of course. Well, welcome, John. We're so glad to have you here. Thanks. So I always like to start by asking people, why did you choose to do what you're doing? Why did you choose to become an investment banker of all the things that John Rochford could have done? Well, first of all, Jeremy, thanks thanks for having me. I think like most people's careers, um, it was by accident. I had no intention early on of really being an investment banker. I spent the early part of my career doing management consulting, and I like to problem solve. And so I had an opportunity to be on the buy side, uh, doing mergers and acquisitions uh, in strategy consulting, and then that led uh, to investment banking. And I found it uh, candidly exciting. Um, and novel and unique from what can be the drudgery of doing uh, consulting and strategy consulting. So once I got a taste of uh, the art of the deal and being involved in that, it was something that um, I, you know, for me was just a calling that I had to, you know, roll up the sleeves and, and go for it. Well, you know, John, that all lawyers wish they had gone into investment banking, right? <laughs> yes. But I'm, but I'm sure it's not the other way around. True. Absolutely <laughs> true. Well, that's great. Um, let's, let's take a step back and talk a little bit about a company is looking to sell itself. How do you start? What's the start of a sale process for a company? Yeah, I, I think uh, it should start well before a company actually decides to sell. I think at the point of actual a company uh, getting founded and getting started, I think it makes a heck of a lot of sense to think about you know why you're there, why why you're starting your company, and what your your big dream and aspiration is. And I can only hope it's not to sell the company. I hope it's it's dreaming big and trying to do something better um, than just looking for an exit for the company. So, you know, having said that. Uh, I do think prepping at the beginning is important uh, from uh, a company outset um, well before you get to the point because then you're trying to go back uh, and recreate and change things that might have been done three to five years ago. So I think start with the end in mind, but don't have it consume you at the same time. So I think that's obviously great advice. And I'm, a, I'm a big believer in the same thing of telling companies, you know, start thinking about the exit almost from the beginning. And that goes to how you structure the company, maintaining records, et cetera. Absolutely. Now, working with a banker, 
when is it appropriate to reach out to a banker? In, when you're thinking about selling, when you already have a term sheet from somebody, a letter of intent, what's the right time? Well, I, I think it, it, it depends. And that's not a, a great answer, but I really think it does. Because I think depending on the competency of the management team and the board, um, it may make sense to get an advisor in earlier uh, in certain situations if the team is a little bit more uh, skilled uh, and knowledgeable of the M&A process, it may be something that they may delay actually getting uh, an advisor on board. But I think actually getting good uh, advisory people around you, even if it's not a formal banker relationship, but people who understand and who have built companies and sold companies is absolutely critical for young companies and young entrepreneurs that are starting companies is to surround yourself uh, potentially with bankers, but even just folks that have grown companies and sold companies so that you're not repeating some, some of the errors that have, have been done before. So I, th I think that's actually really interesting. So just so I'm clear that we're you know, hearing what you're saying, um, you don't just hire an investment banker when suddenly you know, in your inbox you get a letter of intent from some company looking to buy you. You really want to be thinking about this beforehand. You want to be hiring somebody who can advise you about how to position the company, how to maximize value well before that arrives. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, the majority of our clients, we knew them two, three, sometimes four years before an actual liquidity event, uh, guiding them, helping them on capital raise, but also market timing around when's the appropriate time to sell uh, in the life cycle of that company. So no, absolutely. You want to get uh, sage advice early uh, in the stage of the company so that you're prepping it um, for the potential exit down the road. So. Along those lines, what, what kind of services would someone like you or a typical investment advisor, investment banker provide in that early stage, right? Because here's the reality, John. I've been working with companies and selling companies for 30 plus years, and the vast majority, and it might even be more than the vast majority, don't engage the banker until somebody's knocked on their door and they've got somebody who's saying, hey, I want to buy you. And they're like, hey, Jeremy, no, we got this offer. You know, do we need an investment banker? And I'm like, yes. And of course, wish you would talk to somebody well before this process had started. So what is it that, you, what is it that you're going to do for this company in advance of that letter of intent or even them thinking about being ready to, to sell the business? Sure. I think, um, you know, first and foremost, just a very tactical one is on valuation. So I think uh, for entrepreneurs, the toughest thing they can do is to separate themselves from what the fair market value uh, would be for their company in a, in a change of control transaction. So I think one is just objectivity. A banker can come in and say, look, you because you're not they're not getting paid for that advice. They're going to tell you what they really believe your company is worth. And that for an entrepreneur uh, sometimes is good news, sometimes might be below what they thought. But getting that level of expectation before running a sale process is, is, is pretty critical. Excellent. So timing, right? We talked a little about those market timing matters. So before we dive into why you have to be paying attention to what's happening in the M&A market, if you don't mind, what what is the typical length of a sales process? And I don't mean again from when that term sheet arrives over the door, some, somebody knocking on your door. But in your experience, how long does it take from a for a company to, think, to be thinking about, you know, we think we might be looking for a sale until you actually get to the point that there's a firm offer, you've got a deal in hand, and obviously, you know, from there, there's all the legal stuff and closing. Sure. But I'm talking about from the perspective of, a, of what you do, which is helping the company get ready for a sale and then find the right buyer. How long does that typically take? 
Yeah, I think uh, you know, the prep generally takes about a month uh, to get a company ready to go to market. And then from there, you're looking anywhere from a three to six month window uh, to get a transaction closed. And um, and as you know, it's all over the map. Sometimes a deal can take you know 60 days from the time I get engaged. There's a quick term sheet and a quick close especially if it's an asset deal. Uh, and then other times, as you know, it can go six months plus. And then sometimes there's the client that says, we want to close it in two weeks. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you talked a little bit about, you know, valuation and that sometimes entrepreneurs have, let's call it maybe a, you know, a very personalized perspective on valuation. How do you go about helping an entrepreneur determine what their business is worth? Yeah, I think a lot of it is uh, for entrepreneurs is to figure out whether there's a, a, a strategic value uh, to their company. And here's what I mean by that. Generally, financial buyers, private equity firms are going to look at you from a cash flow perspective. So let's say you make a million dollars net cash flow out of your business. Then someone could easily walk in in today's market and place 7 to 10x, sometimes 12x your EBITDA for the company. So $1 million EBITDA could sell for 7 to 10 million. However, that's simply an economic value that someone can assess on the future cash flows. Uh, the more interesting question is, is there a strategic premium that someone would pay for your company beyond that EBITDA multiple and that has to do with could someone take whatever you buy whatever it is you know or whatever you sell on the market and could could someone then take that and expand it geographically so let's say you have a 10 million dollar company but if a Google or someone were to buy that company could they offer it to 50 million users to 100 million users and hence a Google or a Facebook or an Amazon would be willing to pay a strategic premium well above what let's say a private equity buyer would do because they could take your platform, your software, your services and then expand it out to their markets so that they would then be willing to pay more than just the, the fair market value that let's say an accountant or a valuation specialist would come up with. Okay, so a strategic buyer in general is going to pay a higher price than a financial buyer. Yes, especially if it's a case where it's a competitive bid. As you know, if you have multiple offers, that's all goodness. But they then have to go to their boss inside of their company and explain why it is that for a 10 million run rate business, they're willing to pay 50 million, 100 million, 200 million. Which, which is a great lead into my next question, which is, so what are the advantages of a financial buyer instead of a strategic buyer, even if it may be at a lower valuation? It, there's a couple um, that I've seen um, in a financial buyer. They, they can move quick. Uh, for those that have already have and, and secured the capital, uh, their value prop is often, hey, we may not be uh, the richest in terms of valuation, John, but we can close this in 30 days. And they absolutely will. And so even though you might be able to get 20% more uh, from a strategic buyer, uh, they will come in in times and just say, listen, we can, we can get this in 30 days. If you go to someone else, it could take 90, 120 days. How often do financial buyers take 100% of the company as opposed to leaving the management with some additional ownership in the new company and maybe trying to grow it for a, you know, the, the proverbial second bite of the apple? Well, it's interesting. I think in, in the private equity world, they all have their theories and, and theses of how they want to invest their capital. So uh, the majority of them like to control. 
Um, they like situations where they can come in, um, uh, provide a, a liquidity event uh, for management, uh, but then also keep them around for an extended period of time for three to five years. But in, in my experience, the vast majority of them like, like, that, like to have that 51% uh, for control. Okay. And what about in strategic buyers? How often are they keeping the existing management team around? And if so, you know, how long typically? Yeah, you know, I tell you, in, in this age of SaaS and cloud business models, where a fair amount of companies that are that have scaled really do operate um, as as an ongoing concern without the founders necessarily needing to be that involved. So I think in sort of this new cloud SaaS business models, uh, they certainly still want to keep the core management around because there's certain things that just need to get transferred let's say, over a six to 12 month period. Um, but in the old days, by old days meaning five, five, ten years ago, there would be uh, a need and oftentimes a requirement, as you know, as part of the, the um, the close that 80% or more of the employees sign employment agreements. Um, and I'm not seeing that as often uh, as I did, let's say, five, 10 years ago. So sometimes we hear about these things called aqua hires, right? It's almost just the opposite of what you said, that really because there's a shortage of good engineers and maybe they're just looking for people who can help them, you know, add new features and functions that they're effectively acquiring teams as opposed to technology. You know, um, I'm not seeing those as much as I did. Um, in in fact, at that model of, if you remember, as, as I do, it was a half million to a million per engineer. Uh, there certainly is a shortage right now in Silicon Valley uh, that's been well covered about uh, that's starting to creep back into the market where people will buy a, a top-notch engineering team of 20 engineers uh, for 20, 30 million. But I still think it's the outlier right now. Uh, the large strategics that you mentioned and others that I've been dealing with, they really want to see proven technology and proven business models prior, prior to buying the company. I assume certainly also to get a higher valuation, you need to have technology as opposed to just great engineers. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So, John, very often we hear people will be, you know, an investment banker will recommend to a client, start a fundraising process, and then the fundraising process will kind of convert into an M&A process as opposed to going out and just marketing yourselves that you're for sale. Is that something you you do that you recommend, and if so, why? And if not, why not? Yeah, I, I think that the, the 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 key part of that is making sure you're known in the market and, and to the likely acquirers and potential investors well before you're even thinking of selling the company. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes I see is is companies that have done well, uh, focused on ex, on executing on their business plan, but haven't done a good job at positioning themselves and marketing themselves to the ecosystem that they play in. So whether that's through a fundraising exercise or simply through getting to know the industry participants and looking at ways to partner, that's all goodness. So that in, let's say, two years later, when you do look at an exit or you are approached to be acquired and you do want to talk to the top five or ten likely buyers, they don't say company XYZ who. They say, oh yeah, we know that company. We've actually been tracking that company because we met with them 18 months ago. And by the way, how's it going on what you told us last time? So being known in the market space, especially with those adjacent players and even some of your competitors, I think is a really smart decision to do well before looking at actually selling your company. Is, is it a sign of weakness to be out there marketing your company for sale? 
I, I think from, like I said, from the point of view of getting out there early and just from the point of perspective of getting to know the players from just a potential partnership perspective, it's obviously harder with a direct competitor because they're going to be like, why are you calling me? But with there's so many other players out there that would be right next door to you that could lever or partner with you and getting out there, especially in just from a PR and marketing perspective, I think is a good thing because they're, they're, they probably know about you anyway from a competitive intelligence, but starting to build those personal trust relationships, which as you know, gets deals done, uh, is critical. So. So that I, I just make, make sure I, I hear you clearly. So what you're, what you're suggesting is start talking to the potential buyers early on, maybe even if you're not actually for sale at that time. Establish the relationship, let them get to know you. Maybe it's because you're fundraising, maybe it's just because of something else. And then when you come back to them ultimately later for the sale process, it speeds things along. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. And, you know, no matter what industry or or company you have, there are trade shows, events. There's things that you can go to uh, to get your name out there and get to be known in that ecosystem. And I find that that pays off down the road when there is a a a trade that could be happening because then people actually know who you are. So this is really interesting because one of the things I've worked on over the last couple of years, in particular with my earlier stage companies, is to actually get the boards to be thinking along the lines of what you just talked about. So maybe it's not at every board meeting, but maybe once a year at a board meeting to have themselves or somebody like yourself show up at a board meeting and do a market review, talk about who might be good potential acquirers down the road, talk about how to get the company visible in front of those in front of those folks. Do you do you recommend that? Is that something you've done? Well, yeah, and, and that goes back to your whole question about market timing, right? In, in general, um, you see companies that often will sell too soon uh, for, from a market timing perspective. They're in a nascent market. They've got some initial traction. Um, and oftentimes when I'm brought into those discussion of should we invest in this company for another 18 to 24 months or sell it now, uh, oftentimes it's just too early. And then the opposite can happen. A company is heads down. Uh, they've missed the consolidation. I'm in the middle of that now in a marketing tech area where I'd say it's in the seventh inning. So it's getting a little late. All the players have already acquired, let's say, five or six companies. And then lo and behold, there's you know companies out there right now that are looking to be acquired. But when um, the large strategists have already placed their bets, they're not going to make another one. So any, any particular experience you've had that you'd want to share with our listeners, either on the you know, well done process or a poorly done process that maybe people could learn from? Yeah, I think... Um, a local company down here that uh, was had great market traction. They're a software company, uh, and yet the hardest thing is to really build a, a, a sales channel um, for a company. So I met with them. Uh, they were looking for relationships with folks like uh, Hewlett Packard, IBM, um, and, and some of the Japanese companies, Hitachi, uh, Fujitsu, and a few others. So um, on my recommendation, I said, "Well, let me make some." some intros to companies that may want to partner and license your technology. And oh, by the way, those that will license your technology because they had great tech and a great engineering team, and I said, they'll very well come back in 12 to 18 months and want to buy you. So lo and behold, out of the six, five didn't work out, uh, but one of the introductions led to an OEM licensing agreement, which almost 18 months to the day turned into a verbal indication of interest, and we then sold the company roughly four months 
after that. So again, it's just that notion of getting out there in, in your industry and in your market, don't not being afraid of telling people what you're doing, sharing what you're doing, um, and that's all goodness for what will ultimately be a successful exit down the road. Well, thank you, John. This was really valuable information. I think uh, for purposes of our listeners, what I take away from this is it's never too early to be thinking about when are you going to sell the business, how are you going to sell the business, what the valuation may be, and who the potential buyers are. Thank you, John, again for joining us. I am Jeremy Glazer of Men's 11, and thank you for listening to this edition of From the Edge. From the Edge.